All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, like Tom said and Heather said, my name is Herrick. I'm one of the pastors here alongside Tom. And if you are new, like Tom was saying, we are a church plant. We are new. So it's a great time to be new. We started uh, having our Sunday gatherings here at Margarita Middle in May of this year. So we've only been going for a few months. And if you were with us at the beginning, we started with a series called Jesus Is. And this, the series that we started with was a series through the Gospel of John. And we got through four chapters of John, and then we put a pause. So if you just joined us like in the last you know, 10 weeks or so, um, you, you may have been with us for the treasure series that we, that we did, which was really a, a series about looking through, um, talking through like what it looks like to follow Jesus with our finances. Or after that, we did a series called We Are Restored, which really was a time for us to really explore and dive into what our values are as a church and what they mean to us. And if you miss any of those messages, by the way, they're really good. Check them out. They're on the, um, on the app or on iTunes. But we're going to ju- jump back into Jesus Is Today. So with that said, um, I want to kick off my message with a quick story to kind of set up our time. So about a week and a half ago, uh, my car wouldn't start. And I did what I always do. I immediately called AAA, and they sent one of their uh, battery specialists out to my house. And so this guy got into my car, into the engine, starts tinkering, messing with stuff, doing a whole bunch of things, tapping things. And he kind of emerged and popped out and he was like, one thing I know, it's not a battery problem. It's a starter problem. And then he showed me and explained all these different reasons why it was a starter problem and not a battery problem. And I didn't understand anything he was saying. Um, And I actually don't think he did either. Because I got Jay, who's not here today, he's one of our members. I got Jay, he came over to my house, and he actually knows about cars, and he installed a new starter. He says we did it together, but really I just watched, I handed him tools that were usually the wrong one uh, as, he, as he put the new starter in. And then he was like, all right, we're good to go. I put the key in, I turn, and what happens? Nothing. Click, click, click. Turns out it wasn't a starter problem. So... I had the car towed uh, to the auto repair shop. Can you guys guess what the problem was? The battery. The battery was the problem. So I spent, basically, I can't tell you how many hours learning how how to change a starter, helping Jay. I got my hands dirty. I think I still have gunk under my fingernails from getting my hands in the hood. He got a picture, which he sent to my wife, which is pretty cool. She did not say she wasn't impressed. Uh, and um, spent just so much time thinking I had a starter problem, but in reality, that wasn't the problem at all. It was a battery problem. And I've had a lot of time to think about this. I I worked on this for hours, this starter, and I've worked on this message for hours, and I got to thinking, and I was like, actually, uh, I think there's an analogy here between how I handle my problems in life and how I handle my car problems. I think there's something there. I think oftentimes I get into this mindset of if I just blank, everything would be fine. If I just replaced the starter, everything would be fine. And the reality is it wasn't, that wasn't the problem. It was the battery. And I think in life I actually have found that I many times take that perspective. So let me give you an example. In life I often think, If I just got my finances in order, everything would be fine. If I just got my kids to behave and obey me every time, (laughs) perfectly, without fail, 
all would be fine, right? And here's the thing. I know I'm not alone in this. You do this too. You probably do this all the time. What is it for you? So maybe for you, it's if I just had a spouse. Maybe for you, it's just if I had a different spouse that wasn't my current spouse, everything would be fine. Or maybe for you, it's something else. If I just blank, fill in the blank. What is that blank for you? If I just had that, everything would be fine and I would be at peace and I would have rest in my life, right? But I think as I say it out loud and as you're hearing this, I think you know instinctively that's not true. It's not true. It's possible to think this way and really come to find out later in life, oh, I've been thinking I have a starter problem when in reality I have a battery problem this whole time. And so in other words, like, what if, we, if, what, if what we identify so often as our problems in life aren't actually the problem? And what if the solutions we come up with don't actually ever help us get well? That's what I want to talk to you guys today, because today we're going to read a story that I think is going to really help us rethink our problems from God's perspective and see what solutions he provides that actually bring lasting change and transformation to our lives. Does that make sense? All right. So turn with me over to John 5, okay, starting with verse 1. So the context here, at the end of John 4, we just saw Jesus heal a boy, a young boy, and then his whole family came to faith in Jesus. And so verse 1 starts like this. After this healing, essentially, uh, there was a feast of the Jews. There was a big religious party. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem for this party. And now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool. In Aramaic, it's, in Aramaic, it's called Bethesda. And it has five roofed colonnades. Okay, these are like covered walkways, essentially. And in this area, there lay a multitude of invalids. Okay, these are sick people. They're blind, they're lamed, paralyzed. And there was one guy who had been there for 38 years. And now, just to, just to put, it, put this in context, for an ancient person, 38 years is a lifetime. That was like about as long as the average life expectancy. So this would be maybe something more like 80 years for us today. He had been in that condition for, for essentially a whole lifetime. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? What a question. Can you imagine that? It's like ta- asking a broke guy, like, do you want a million dollars? Like, um, yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. Verse 7, interesting response this man gives him. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And when I'm going, when I'm going another steps down before me. Okay, so what's happening here? This is confusing, right? This man viewed this pool as having some sort of magical healing properties. Basically, his, his idea, okay, his mindset was, if I can just get into the water first, I would be made well. If I could just get in the water, everything would be fine. But he had a problem, right? What did he say? He can't get in first, ever, without help. And he has no help how did Jesus respond to this guy? I can tell you like how I would respond to this guy. I'd be like, this dude's a crank. Like he's putting his trust in bubbles. What's going on, dude? That's your plan for life? What does Jesus do? Verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take, take up your bed and walk. 
And at once this man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So in a moment, this guy's life is changed forever. The direction of his life is forever changed. This is a guy who had suffered for decades, for the equivalent of like 80 years. Okay, and in a moment, in a flash, Jesus changes everything. That's power. That's the power that Jesus has. That's his glory on display. It's incredible stuff. And this really should be like, keep in mind that Jesus was on his way to a festival, right? He's on his way to a big party. And then he goes to a pool and he heals a guy. So there should be like a pool party breaking out on the way to the party, essentially. Okay, this should be, an, this should, if there's ever a time to rejoice and to be happy and to celebrate, it's this moment where this guy who had no hope, no chance in life was healed, right? And yet, all is not well. The end of verse 9, when I read it, I was like, ooh, this is ominous. Now that day was the Sabbath. That's how it ends. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. So the Jews, and when you read that, read religious people, said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. You're breaking the rules, man. Verse 11. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and, and walk. Okay? The man who healed me, who helped me get well after a lifetime of suffering, said, take up your bed and walk. Verse 12. He said, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Okay. The plot thickens. Controversy erupts. New characters emerge. Enter in the sin police. This is like the special Sabbath enforcement division of the sin police, okay? On the side of their donkey, it just says, ruining funds in Sinai. Okay? So the sin police did not care whether this guy had been healed. It was like, that didn't happen. They didn't care. They didn't care that this guy had been healed of an incurable sickness. They were furious that he dared to pick up his bed on the Sabbath. Okay, that broke the rules, and that was going to be hell to pay. Okay, what's going on here? This might be confusing to you. The Sabbath, it's a simple idea. The Sabbath was a gift from God to his people. It was intended to be a day of rest, one day a week to rest, to really focus on God and to enjoy him. Okay, other cultures didn't have a Sabbath. This was a special thing that God gave to his people. It was a way for them to enjoy his love and their unique identity as his people whom God chose, right? It was meant to be restful. But here's what happened. The Sabbath became tiresome. It became a burden. It became a tiresome exercise because the true meaning of Sabbath was lost amidst all the rules and all the regulations that people had put on the Sabbath. That's what happened, And did the religious people seem to be enjoying God or resting in God or delighting in him? No. The religious people ruined God's party, basically. Now they're about to ruin this guy's life if he doesn't produce the name of the man who healed him so that the Sabbath police could continue their investigation of his crime, of bringing joy and mirth to this man's life. So that's what's going on here. Verse 13, we'll keep rolling. So the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. So afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple 
and said to him, See, you are well. In, uh, if you ever read Eugene Peterson's message paraphrase, it says like, You look fantastic. <laughs> Sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. Yikes. Sin no more. That sounds pretty gnarly if you have any self-awareness of your own sin. We'll unpack it later. Okay. But as a point of clarification, I want to just mention this real quick. Um, Jesus says, sin no more or else something worse may happen to you. Okay. The implication there is that sickness is sometimes an asterisk, sometimes caused by sin. Sometimes. And this, of course, kind of makes sense. Like, if you stop and think about it, if you are addicted to food, if you are addicted to alcohol, if you're addicted to drugs, if you're addicted to tobacco, if you're addicted to, su- to substances, you're going to get sick. That's just, that's just the way that it is. So we kind of get this. It's common sense. But at the same time, Scripture is clear that sickness can also have absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with sin. And we're going to get to that. We're going to, we're going to get to this passage in John 9 in a few weeks where Jesus' disciples assume that a man who was born blind had sinned. The question was like, is it his sin or is it his parents' sin? And Jesus said, it's nobody's sin. Yeah, the purpose of this man's sickness is not that he's sick. He's sick not because of sin, but because the power of God is going to be seen when I heal him. That's the point. So sometimes sin leads to sickness, but not always. Just wanted to make that clarification. Let's keep reading. We'll finish this text for today. So uh, verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Okay, so uh, he ratted Jesus out. Not his finest moment, this man. Uh, at At worst, he's a traitor. At best, he's foolish for throwing Jesus to the dogs, basically. And it says in verse 16, and this, is, this, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Okay. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. In verse 18, this was, because, this was why the Jews were seeking to kill him all the more, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Hear me out. Jesus knew what he was doing. Okay, that guy had been there for how long? 38 years. Could this healing have waited until Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or any day but the Sabbath? Yeah, it could have. Jesus did this knowing what would happen. This was a part of his pursuit of the religious people. And he's saying... God the Father's working. Jesus is saying, I'm not bound by the Sabbath laws any more than the Father is. So he's saying, I'm going to level with God. I'm equal with him. So this is Jesus. He was pursuing this man who's sick and has no hope in life, and he's pursuing at the same time the religious people who are sick and have no hope in life but don't know it. This is Jesus' pursuit of people, his brilliant, wonderful reckless pursuit of sinners like you and me. So we're going to stop there for the, for the day as far as t- the text goes. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at three things that I see in this, that I, that I, there's three things I want to talk about and we'll t- go back to the text to kind of talk these through. So my three points for this morning. One, what this story teaches us about people. Two, what this story teaches us about Jesus. 
and three, how this story affects how I or how we or how you think about your own life. So we're going to look at people, we're going to look at Jesus, and we're going to look at us and apply what this story says to all three. So what does this story teach us about people? What does this story teach us about people? Okay, so one of the things that I see, I think, in this text is that as people, we long for freedom, we long for joy, and we long for peace. But we often seek this in ways that leave us unsatisfied and restless. Unsatisfied and restless. Let's take a look at the man at the pool. How did he seek for joy and peace in his life? What was his thing? What was his motto? If I just had this healing, if I could just get in the water, if I could just get my body to be well, all would be well in my life. So his hope was in a magical pool of bubbles. And here's the thing, he was not alone. His other people were with him by the pool trying to do the same thing. So he was hardly by himself. And as I was thinking about this text, I think we have modern-day equivalents of this kind of thinking today. I'm going I'm to read a few, see which one resonates with you. One, success. If I just had that job, if I just had that career, if I just had that promotion, if I just had that business, that sale, that deal, that, that level of recognition, or if I just caught a break in life, then all would be well. This is, a, this is something that we adopt from our culture. Politics. I'm going to step on some toes. Politics. Here's one. If I just had my candidate in office advocating for my causes, advancing my policies, appointing my justices, then this nation would turn around and all would be well. Politics. About the American dream, we're just going to blow stuff up today. (laughs) The American dream. If I just had the spouse and the house, or a different spouse and a bigger house, and the 1.5 pets, and the 2.5 children, and the 4.5 million in the retirement account, everything would be well. The American dream. Again, we're sitting by a pool, believing this stuff, waiting for this stuff to happen. Parenting. This one's, if I just had some well-behaved children who always obey, who provide one to two insta-perfect moments during the week, who always sleep through the night, who never embarrass me publicly and never exasperate me in private repeatedly, then my life would be well. I think this one's particularly seductive to me. And this, this all sounds good, and you're like, man, you could probably add a few things to your own list, right? But has anyone ever found lasting joy or freedom or peace through any of these things? Isn't it more likely that most people that have pursued these things have been left unsatisfied and restless? Now, we just talked about the man, but there's other people in this story too, right? There's the religious people. They too had a way of thinking. We're just going to just keep detonating bombs this morning. They thought, if we just go back to obeying the Bible and respecting the traditions, and if we're serious about it, then God will bless our land and our people. I think we definitely have a modern equivalent to this. I think it's, it's the national religion of America. If as a nation we just started to respect God again, 
and if we had the Ten Commandments in the public square, and if we got prayer back in schools, and if we could just stem the tide of moral decay in our nation and get better laws on the books and then actually enforce them, everything would be well. God will bless our land and bless our people. I think that kind of thing is prevalent in America today, in American Christianity today. But in reality, do any of those things really bring lasting joy or peace to the people who passionately pursue them? Does this kind of thing like cause others to rejoice and celebrate God's goodness and his generosity towards unrepentant, undeserving sinners? That's the litmus test. And coming from San Diego, I can tell you that it doesn't. This kind of thing does not, it doesn't cause the unbelievers to think, yeah! (laughs) So I want to propose to you this. We often misdiagnose the real problem in life, and then we prescribe solutions that just don't do it, just don't address the real issue. We're prone to think it's the starter when it's actually a battery problem. I think, you know, the man, I'm sick. I just need to get well. Well, Jesus healed the man. He got what he wanted. He healed him. And then what does Jesus say after the healing? Verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you look fantastic. Sin no more or else something worse is going to come to you. Whoa. This man lived his life longing for one thing, and he got it. And when he got it, Jesus says, great, I'm happy for you. Let's talk about your real problem, sin. You guys tracking with me? Is this making sense? Jesus won't have it. He's like, Jesus, I got what I wanted. I got the job. I got the spouse. I got the well-behaved children. I got the house. I got the finances. I'm good. Jesus, he's like, no, that's not it. He loves you and me too much to not let us see what our real problem is, sin, and then call us to do something about it. This story teaches us, it teaches you, it teaches me that you can get what you want. You can get the healing that you want and be no better off for it. You still won't have the one thing. And I will, if I give myself to whatever it is, it's not Jesus. I'm still not going to have the one thing that I need most to have peace and joy in life. And what is that? Renewal. Transformation. Spiritual life. Leaving sin behind and walking towards Jesus. So maybe you're here today and you feel like your biggest problem is that in your marriage, you need communications tools. You need tools. You need to be able to communicate better with your wife, with your husband. That ain't it. Now, I want to be, want to be clear here. They can certainly help. And I want to pursue better communication with my wife. God knows she'll benefit from it. And I'll benefit from it, right? So that's not a bad thing. The biggest problem, though, that we have in our marriage is that we need renewal, transformation, And that's not just for married people, that's for everybody. Okay, it's not a starter problem, it's a battery problem that we're dealing with. It's a dead battery. It's a heart that needs to come alive. Okay? And I think what Jesus is saying to this man is really simple. Okay, we hear sin no more and we get freaked out. Don't get freaked out. I think this is what Jesus is saying. 
He's saying, don't just embrace your new legs, man. But more importantly, embrace the new life I've given you. Don't go back to your old ways. Don't trust your life to anything or anyone but me. I think that's what Jesus is saying to this man. Now, this man has a choice. Think about it. He's just been set free. He just got the healing that he wanted. He just got the whole thing. He got the promotion, the pay raise, the whatever. He got it all. Now he has a choice. He can go back and fix his eyes on the next thing that he's got coming. Okay? This man, actually just think about it, he's been lying by the side of a pool his whole life. And he lives off of the alms of other people, the charity of other people. So now he's got to get a job. Now he's got to start to like, take care of himself and support himself. There's all these things that come with being set free. And this man could, if he, if he doesn't listen to and obey what Jesus said, he could just give himself to the next thing. All right, if I can just get a job, I'll be self-sufficient. If I can just get this or that. And he certainly will need a job. He's got to support himself, right? But he has to leave the mindset behind that says, if I just had this, everything would be fine. He has to leave that behind. He's got to go forward to a new life. A new life that has celebration, joy, and Jesus at the center of it. Not himself or his needs. I'll say that again. He has to leave that life behind and go forward to a life of joy and celebration with Jesus at the center, not himself or his needs or his wants. Now, that's true of the man. It's also true of the religious people in the story. They have to leave the life behind that just says, if we just come up with good laws and enforce them, all will be well and we'll have peace. No, it, just, it doesn't deal with our real problem. Rules aren't bad. They just don't transform our hearts, which is what we need most. I mean, just look at the fruit. Just think about this. Look at the fruit of, this, of the religious people's lives. How do you think the people around them felt? Manipulated? Controlled? Pushed? Threatened? And there's retaliation coming. They're literally like, we're going to kill Jesus. That's the fruit of the religious life that focuses on rules and not transformation and renewal. But countless Christians today put their trust in rules. And all, any of us are prone to this. And the tragedy is that just like the religious people in the story, if we focus on rules, we will not experience transformation and renewal. And it will lead us, leave us sad, joyless, restless people. And the people around us will feel inferior, judged, and even condemned. And that is not a party. Not a party I want to be a part of. That's not the party Jesus came to bring. Okay, but before we come down too hard on the religious people, I think it's important to remember that anyone can wind up in the space because the problem is not out there, it's in here. Mark 7, 20 to 23 says this. This is Jesus' own words. He says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. Okay, it goes without saying that this little list 
is true of everyone. No one here, none of us can say, that doesn't apply to me. I don't have any sin in my heart. You have the sin of pride, (laughs) which has made it impossible for you to see yourself clearly. Got to take the log out, brother. Okay, back to this. Everything resides right here in the heart. All of this sin resides right here from birth. And it could spill itself out into the Christian life. Now, recently I was reading through Exodus and I sensed God gently helping me to see that I struggle with coveting, which is in verse 22 of Mark 7. It says, coveting comes out of the heart. I want what others have. I want the gifts that other people have. I'm completely honest. If I just had so-and-so's mind and so-and-so's speaking gift and so-and-so's leadership gift, all would be well and I'd have peace and joy in my life. I believe that a lot of the time. I could be a pastor helping people follow Jesus and not experiencing inner renewal and transformation because every minute of every day I'm coveting what I can't have. It's choking out the spiritual life within me. And I experience that. And maybe you've experienced that in me when you see me all insecure and that's what's going on in my heart. I want something and I can't have it. It's killing my spiritual life in those moments. But this story actually tells me that I can leave that way of thinking behind. I can leave that life behind. I don't have to stay there. I can actually embrace the new life that Jesus has given me. And I can actually cultivate a grateful heart it's at rest in Jesus and what he's done for me. And I can minister and serve and love and lead and do whatever. Love my wife, love my children, love my neighbor out of that space of rest in Jesus. So I want to ask you this. What is it for you? What is it that you need to leave behind? What is God putting on your heart? What way of thinking? What patterns? What behaviors? That betray kind of like this If I just had this, then I would have everything I ever wanted, peace and joy and happiness. What do you need to leave behind? Here's my first point. We want joy and peace in life, but we pursue solutions to our problems that leave us restless. What we need most is inner renewal and transformation. What we need most is inner renewal and transformation. That's my first point. Okay, point number two. They're going to go faster. What do these verses teach about Jesus? This is way more fun. Jesus, first, these are just my observations of the text. Jesus specializes in difficult cases. Jesus specializes. So if you feel like you're a tough cookie, Jesus can handle. Watch this. This man that he heals apparently doesn't even have faith. John, throughout the gospel, you'll hear him talk about faith. So-and-so believed. So-and-so believed. He's, He's silent on that point for this man. This man apparently didn't even have faith in Jesus. Jesus just asked the guy, do you want to get well? And he just listened. And the guy said, well, I can't get better on my own. And that was enough for Jesus to work with. That was enough. I can't get better on my own. So are you at a point with your problems where you can say, I can't get better on my own? If so, take heart. Jesus can work with you. Jesus can work with that. Even if you feel like you have no faith, you're just at a point where you say, I can't get better on my own. Jesus can work with that, and he's pleased to, and he showed it through this man's life. 
Okay? Do you have a struggle that's dominating you? Maybe it's anger, maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's control. Um, maybe it's an unquenchable desire for approval and for success. Maybe it's an addiction to porn. Maybe it's a different kind of addiction. Maybe it's anxiety or jealousy. What's getting the best of you today? If Jesus was to ask you, do you want to get well, how would you answer that question? If all you can muster is, well, I'm not getting any better on my own, that's a start. He can work with that. Hopefully that's good news to you for you today. Hopefully that's encouraging for you today. You can start talking to him. You can move towards him. So Jesus specializes in difficult cases. He's not scared of your stuff. He's not scared of your problems. Okay, second thing I noticed in the text, Jesus cares about your hurts and pains and my hurts and pains. If you go back to the story, Jesus is on his way to a festival. He's on his way to a party. And guess what? He's the Messiah. Which means the parties, who is it for? It's for him. The people don't know it, but it's all for him. So could you imagine, like, Jesus? He's like, well, this party is for me. They don't know it's me, but I'm so awesome that I don't mind that they don't know it's me, so I'm going to go to this party anyway <laughs> and not take the credit. And then on his way to the party, what does Jesus decide to do? He stops at a hospital to be with sick people. To spend time with them. Who does this? I've never been the life of any party ever. <laughs> Except maybe my own little occasional pity parties. <laughs> but if I were Jesus, I would be sprinting for this party. Sprinting to it. Because I know it's all about me. And I could play it cool, but it'd still all be about me. But I'm not Jesus. And he's not like that. He slows down to be with the hurting, the forgotten, the broken. If you're feeling, this is really important, pay attention. If you're here and you feel forgotten by God, like God doesn't care about you, I just want you to know it's a lie. You can't walk away from reading this text thinking that. Maybe your life experiences or whatever, I get that, but this is what Jesus is saying to you today. I care. Jesus actually shows us what God is like. He shows us what the Father is like. He loves you. He cares about your hurts. And as we're going to see here in a minute, he's going to do something. He wants to do something about your situation. So Jesus cares about your hurts and pains. Next thing I see in this text, Jesus' healing power is not for the deserving. It's for the undeserving. Jesus' healing grace is not for the deserving. It's for the undeserving. I got a quote from Michael Eaton. Guy wrote a commentary on the book of John. I love this. He says, He does not choose us because we are worthy. And he looks at this man and he says, There was nothing worthy in this man. He brought his own troubles on himself. Might sound harsh, but Jesus said, like, if you keep sinning, it's gonna get worse. So there's a self-inflicted wound in this man's life. He was not very repentant. He kind of pointed a finger and is like, I have no help. It's other people's fault that I can't get better. He was complaining and criticizing others and was superstitiously waited, waiting to be put in some so-called magic pool, healing bubbles. That's what his thing was. But Jesus has mercy on him despite all of his folly. How awesome is that? There it is. Great quote. I think it's true. It's for the undeserving, not for the deserving. So if you feel undeserving of God's grace, maybe... 
if we're sitting here talking and you feel like kind of foolish about some of the things that you put your hope in in life, like Jesus has mercy for you. And we're all foolish is kind of foolishness is kind of bound up in our hearts and it has to be worked out and we all struggle with it in different points in different ways. Jesus has mercy on you and me, which is awesome, I think. And then the last thing, Jesus is our true Sabbath. We talked a little bit about Sabbath earlier, right? Jesus alone brings us rest from sickness and from sin and into the celebration of God's new creation. With respect to sickness, Jesus does heal people miraculously. He does that for this man. Okay, we believe he can still do that today. We still pray for healing. With that said, sometimes he doesn't heal. And um, that's just a reality. But here's what we know. And we don't know why, necessarily. We don't know why that is. But we know that Jesus will one day heal us completely. He's bringing in a new creation. He's going to give us new bodies that work the way they're supposed to. So when we pray for healing, one of the most helpful things I've ever heard is that the answer that God gives us is never no. When we pray for healing, it's a yes or not yet. And by not yet, I mean one day he's going to complete it. One day he's going to restore our bodies and give us glorious ones. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44, kind of fleshes this out. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to life forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are, our bodies are um, as natural, sorry, they are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there will also be spiritual bodies. We're going to get the healing that we want in time. It's either a no, or, or it's either a yes or a not yet, not a no. So that's what Jesus does with sin, with sickness. He's going to transform everything. Now with sin, with respect to sin, Jesus has paid for it. And I think overall as a church, the American church, we get this. Jesus paid it all, all to him. I, like, we kind of get this, right? We, he's forgiven us, but there's more. And this is what I think he's emphasizing to the man when he says, sin no more. I think Jesus is emphasizing this more part, which is that he's renewing us too. Titus 2, 11 to 14 says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for, for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So there's a renewing component to what Jesus is doing. I think he's calling his, this man to live in that reality, to live in that new life. So Jesus forgives us, he's renewing us, he's transforming us, and ultimately we're going to become like him. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We can see and reflect the glory of the Lord, and the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image from one degree of glory to another. He's changing us. Now, one day that process will be complete and we'll be with him. And as I was chewing on this, I was thinking about it, I was like, Jesus is going to bring us safely into the new creation. He's going to give us our Sabbath rest. He's going to give us the eternal Sabbath rest that we all long for. Okay, he's going to bring us into the party that has no end. In God's presence, where there's no more sin, uh, no more brokenness, just the fullness of joy in the presence of God. 
That's what Jesus is doing. That's what he's leading us into. So my second point, we can't get better on our own, but Jesus transforms and renews us as a people. My last point, and this is, this is a quick one. How does this story affect how I think about my own life? So as we patiently wait for the new creation, the Sabbath rest that we're all going to have, how do we live today? Well, we can actually start to pursue new life today. We don't have to give ourselves to superstitions or like the man did, nor religion. We can pursue life with Jesus today and adopt a new mindset. And this new mindset is we're all broken, we all need Jesus, and he's here to help. And one of the, the last things I just want to touch on real quick, do we have the John Tyson quote? I think I have um, a quote. Maybe we don't. I don't know if I got it to you guys in time. But one of the things I want to quickly end on, because I think this is a really important piece of growing, if, if we have tendencies towards religion, which all of us do in one way or another, I think the love that Jesus is bringing can help kill that tendency in us. And so I'll read the quote real quick. This is from John Tyson. He says, When I clearly see my own sexual brokenness, I am less likely to judge others. I'm less likely to judge the LGBT community. And I cry out to Jesus for the transformation of my own heart. When I clearly see my lack of compassion for the poor, I am likely, I'm less likely to judge others as lazy and irresponsible. And I cry out to God for a more generous heart. When I see my own, frustra- my own frustration and unmet longings, I am less likely to judge millennials as idealistic dreamers. And I ask God to revive my own sense of call. When I see my own sin, I am less likely to blame our culture for its decline and I seek my own inner renewal and transformation instead. Is this making sense? Quickly, the third point. We can pursue new life today. So I want to call the band back up. We can pursue that new life today. So as a quick recap, we've seen that we need renewal and transformation, not schemes, not survival strategies, and that the good news is that Jesus himself changes us so we can live a new life today. So I want to just end with a question for you to chew on as we uh, head into the back half of worship. I really want to encourage you guys to chew on this one question. In what way do I need to experience renewal and transformation today? In what way do I need to experience renewal and transformation today? Again, if all you can muster up is like, I can't get better on my own, that's fine. That's the start. You can tell God that. But the point is talk to God about it. Talk to God about what you're going through. Ask him to help you. And if you want, we'd love to pray for you. We'll be up here um, and you can, you can ask for prayer and we'd love to pray. Also, another great response in addition to prayer is to take communion. So we have communion in the back. We have the wine and bread and juice. And I've mentioned this a few times. Jesus was on his way to a party, a celebration. And when we take communion, we're actually celebrating his life. So if you're here and you're just like, I just love Jesus. I'm so excited about him. I'm so excited that he's doing things in my life, that he's changing me, he's renewing me. You can go and take communion and celebrate him. That's a great way to do it. You can take his body, which is broken for you, symbolizing the bread, and you can take the wine, symbolizes his blood that was shed for the remission of your sins, to purify you from all unrighteousness and so you can live a new life. So those are two ways you can respond today. And obviously, we just sing. 
feel free to just belt it out. Like we've got a good king, Jesus, who loves you, who died for you, who was raised for you, who brings in a new life. And so we have a lot to be joyful for and celebrate. So let's sing.